Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. When you discover a win-win solution for both the customer and the merchant, you're sitting on a goldmine. Mr. Yum is a QR code food ordering platform. A dine-in, order, and pay. Pick up or delivery platform for your restaurant. It doesn't seem like there's much to it at face value. But the company has developed a toolkit beyond QR code ordering that now offers payments, loyalty marketing, and customer insights. That is data. Kim Tio was one of the four founders that came up with the idea of Mr. Yum. And she operates as a chief executive officer of Mr. Yum. And she's one of the main reasons why the platform exists today. Launching just three years ago in November 2018, Mr. Yum is now the world's market-leading mobile ordering payments and growth platform. That's pretty cool. Helping venues tackle staffing shortages as they emerge from lockdown, the app also delivers more significant spending from customer orders than traditional table service does. And Mr. Yum has just tied off an $89 million Series A funding with existing backers TEN13 and Airtree, followed by US-based Australian NBR star, Patty Mills and musician Rufus Dussol also putting cash right there on the table. Kim and I chat about how to quantify a business idea. Her answer is going to be very valuable to you and how to create a win-win situation for both the merchant and the customer and what turns a nice-to-have product into a need-to-have, a must-have, a non-negotiable. So let's get into it. Kim Tio, welcome to the Mentor Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Before I talk about Mr. Yum, you look like quite a young lady to me um, and you've got an <laughs> incredibly successful platform as a co-founder and CEO of Mr. Yum and obviously there's other founders but and you've been through a whole lots of uh, capital raisings, et cetera, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on too. But I, I want to go back a little bit. I mean, were you a university dropout or do you, you know, get a bright idea when you were 16 at school and decided to do this? Well, tell, me, tell me the story about what you did. I grew up in Singapore where I was born. I was there till I was 10 and then I moved to Perth of all cities in Australia. And I was there for a couple of years and then actually moved back to, to Singapore, went to an international school. I think being in an international school in high school taught me a lot about adapting and meeting people from all around the world. It, it genuinely felt like the everyone was there for an average of, you know, two or three years. So you were kind of always in different friendship groups and cycling and changing. I think I grew up in a really lucky environment where even though I had a pretty stable family and home life, the world around me was changing all the time. And it probably taught me that picking up something and taking it somewhere else or, you know, making a decision to 
the change isn't actually that big a decision and then and humans are adaptable and that we assimilate and that we're going to be okay at the end of the day um and that a little bit of uncomfort is actually really good for for development and for growing my family is a business family and both my parents have had their small businesses independently so both my mom and my dad as I was growing up and I think I just grew up in a family that I always knew I wanted to do something independent one day um I knew I didn't want to necessarily you know climb the corporate ladder from a pretty young age having said that though I was definitely a quite an academic kid and I grew up in an Asian family so that's always a good pat on the back and I don't think I really understood a life other than going to university and trying to do something you know at least getting a university degree done so that's what I went and did I did an economics and science degree at uh Monash University in Melbourne never once used my biomed science degree because it wasn't ever an area of interest of mine but I really enjoyed the economics part of my studies and always I guess built on the curiosity of that I worked in corporate for probably 5 or 6 years in investment banking at JP Morgan and then a whole bunch of consulting till I was about 25 26 and then decided that it was enough and that I was probably getting too comfortable I think in like you know a, a decently successful corporate career at a young age and decided that I wanted to go and do something of my own I started simply borrowed and it was a e-com business where you could hire bridesmaids dresses instead of having to you know buy them for $300 and then never wear them again so we saw that you could hire a suit for a wedding but you couldn't hire a bridesmaid's dress and there was just nothing on the market available for that at the time like run the runway and glam corner and stuff didn't exist back then it was it was okay it was mildly successful I borrowed 20 grand from my dad and managed to sell the business and return his 20 grand so it was a bit of a break even journey it wasn't exactly a super successful one except for what you learned except for what i learned exactly you know we were like we'll just get on shopify it's going to be easy it wasn't easy learned a lot about web a lot about design <laughs> a lot about like how to hack together you know ADMs and marketing and there's all the stuff that I hadn't learned before in in business. I don't mean this in a bad way, but you have taken for granted your early path to where you are today. In that one you went to an international school, whilst it's a privilege, but at the same time it's a challenge. You know, you're learning to mix with kids from all over the world. They come and go as their parents move around the world. You said it was sort of quite dynamic, but the dynamics what you're talking about is um the changeability of your cohort you have to learn how to be very quite flexible particularly when it's overseas and particularly a place like singapore for example i mean more so yeah. than probably a lot of other places in the world but you were doing biomedical science so i guess yeah. what you're saying is that you were learning in environments which probably were quite foreign to you and then uh, economics i mean uh, economics and economics um like it's it is what it is it's probably that's that is a science but it's sort of fairly regular it's not that sort of challenging but the gross perspective yeah. is on economics it includes me um and then you went off and then you said you went and worked for JP Morgan well you know that's not a like a a normal thing <laughs> and JP Morgan being one of the biggest investment banks in the world um they don't take every student they take the best students so you I mean you've done well which means you've adapted to the dynamics of what it is you're doing you've been able to roll with the punches and excel and or exceed or at least compete quite well. Yeah, I think it would be there's two parts to it. One, I'm definitely an individual where if I'm going to decide to do something then I want to do it well because otherwise it's just a waste of time and I probably should have decided that I didn't want to do it at all. But the second piece is actually I got a lot of freedom from doing well at school. 
So because I grew up in an Asian family, I could always like trade my grade to freedom. How do you mean? I said to my parents, if I continued to be top of the class and have the best results and the best grades that you could possibly want, then I get to do whatever I want. So I got to like go to clubs when I was 15 and my dad would drive me to like parties and, you know, I got to essentially like have the freedom around sleepovers and kind of dating people and doing what I wanted when I was in high school, which is pretty young because of my grades. So I always had like an incentive to keep my grades up so that my parents never had the ability to question all the other things that I was doing. So you learned to trade. <laughs> Definitely. I was like, well, I can't mess this up because then I'm just going to have nothing, no leg to stand on when it comes to negotiating whether I can go out on a Friday or a Saturday or both. Did you play your parents or do you, did you, in hindsight, did your parents play you? I think a bit of both. I think it was quite a, a fair level of understanding of what good looked like on both sides. And I kept up my promise. They kept up their promise and mostly left me alone. Like I didn't really grow up in like a super strict environment. I definitely had a lot of freedom and the freedom came with a responsibility. And how did that translate into what you do today? Mark, it's a really good point. And I've actually never like connected the dots on this. Um, one of the continuous pieces of feedback that we get from our team at Mr. is like no one's watching the clock and genuinely like, I don't want to know how many hours or activities you're necessarily doing I just we just want to know that you're doing your like 100% best at whatever you try and do and you're trying to produce an outcome and it's a fair trade and kind of only you get you only really have to go into breaking down someone's day and thinking about structuring days and all that stuff if you're trying to work on their performance so it's an interesting one like I think that I've naturally grown up prioritizing like having an understanding for what good looks like with someone and if they continue to succeed then I just don't even question how they got there or what lunch breaks they might be taking or what freedom they might be having with their home life because it's more important to focus on the outcome and then create flexibility on the how. I think those two things are parallel. Yeah. Are you saying then in terms of recruitment and, you know, how you operate your business or your expectations in a HR sense from your uh, staff members and particularly your, your key senior staff members and also retention, you're sort of handing over or handing off to them their function and their, uh, into their skill base and relying on the fair trade. And creating a clear understanding of what, you know, is expected. Actually, as you were saying that, one of the things that I most appreciated about my parents growing up is if I did want to go to a party and they knew it was going to be backing up to a boarding game or, or whatever that I committed to the next day. Like I, I wanted to go into a sleepover and then show up at like a commitment at 10 a.m. They'd be like, mm, that's not a very good idea. You're probably going to be going to bed really late and you're probably going to be really tired the next day. Um, but if you want to go and do it, go and do it. And we'll just pick you up at eight o'clock, right? Like they, they tell me the consequences or the likely negative outcome of what I was intending to do and then let the decision be mine. and if I decided to do it and I was really tired, then I'd learn my lesson. That's definitely how we run Mr. Yum. You get the flexibility to go and do something as long as, you know, you understand that there's potentially a risk. And if, if it doesn't work, there's always a way to reverse that decision. So we talk about like one-way doors versus two-way doors. And if something's a one-way door, you go through the door, you can't come back, then we all need to make a bit of a collective decision. If, if it's a two-way door and you can make the decision and quickly 
and it doesn't work and you can come back, then team can make the decision. It doesn't have to come up to, you know, the founders. The decision's kind of up to them and if they and they kind of have to live with the decision that they that they make and find a way to come back or, or, or rectify the situation. Does one come to mind? It definitely happens a lot in sales or accounts or dealing with customers. So, you know, say we have a difficult customer, the team might go, okay, well, like, I think we deal with it, you know, X, Y, and Z. And the question's always, how much do we think this is a potential churn risk? You know, what's the, what's the likelihood of the customer leaving the platform and not using Mistio anymore? If we think that risk is really low, you know, it's like, it's the first time that we've messed up or it's the first time that they're unhappy. They're not likely to churn or they haven't talked about churning before. Then the team can decide or the account manager and their kind of head of account management can go and decide what they want to do with that account. If it works, sweet. If it doesn't work, then we come back and we try and make a, a collective decision. So it's like, it's just a way to not have every single decision bubble up to us and a bit of a framework for deciding, you know, what decisions can team members make and keeps us moving quickly. It's like, otherwise we're just in different time zones and trying to make decisions and, you know, team can get onto us and we're waiting weeks to be able to have a conversation about something that isn't a huge conversation. And then the second example is we're going through a, like a remuneration structure redesign at the moment with our customer facing teams. And that I feel is a, is a one-way decision. You, it's not that easy to make the call, you know, get new people recruited on like a, a, a commission structure and then, three months later, try and like completely change that commission structure again, right? Like it's difficult once you've chosen to go down a certain path to completely change what someone's been promised because new team members are recruited on the promise of a certain structure um, and the clarity of a certain structure. So that's, that's way more a one-way door. And it's taken us like a good, you know, two, eight to 10 weeks to get to a point where we're all happy, like really all of us are sitting in the round around the room thinking this is a really good outcome for the team and the business. It's a decision that's had to take a bit more time because I think it's a one-way door. But the same with parents. <laughs> I'm a parent, I've got four kids. Um, they're yeah. all grown up now, but like I, I was always trying things to to give me more time. I, I was always trying to find space. Pretty much um, delegated to them, you do whatever you got to do, just don't fuck up basically, and because, uh, you know, and I'll be there to pick you up, pick up the pieces, but, you know, like certain things, there'll be consequences if you make a decision that doesn't work out too well. But you, yeah. you have to make these calls. And I do it in my business now, like the mentor business here. I, I just let it run. I'm waiting for them to tell me what's going on. You know, there's no real consequences. I mean, they're probably laughing while they're listening because the production crew is sitting here now listening to this, probably yeah. smiling their heads off thinking, yeah, a little bullshit. Um, but but <laughs> I, I, there's never really any consequences, to be frank with you, um, because I just roll with it because it's a time thing. So when you're running a business like yours and you've got a big business now, delegation or trusting other people to do what it is that they say they can do is quite an art as well as a skill. We definitely have a culture, I think. We give people a lot of rope and a lot of freedom to explore and tell them where we want to go in macro steps, but also more micro steps and trust that they have the capability to figure out how to get there. The best people with all of, with the best attitude and, and intent, they want to do that. They want to feel empowered to be able to go away and design their path whilst still running towards the same goal. And I think that's something that we've had to get better at over time when we were small. Uh, it was easy to have everyone on the same page all the time. Cause we were always in the same building and we got like, it, when, when it was 10, 15, 20 of us, it was easy to make sure that everyone knew exactly what we were doing or where we were trying to get to and when, but as the company's grown, continuous conversation around the focus and 
the timeframes and the goals and the why has become more and more important. Like you have to repeat the focus and the goal a lot more than what we had to before. <laughs> and after your sister and you um, uh, ran the um, bridesmaid outfits, uh, what happened then? We sold it to someone in the wedding industry, which was great. We thought we needed to sell it to someone who kind of already had the connections in the industry. And then I had an idea for a business called Neighbor Flavor, which was buy home cooked meals from people that lived around you. And this was just as Uber was becoming like not even Uber Eats, actually, it was just like the Uber rideshare business was becoming legalized in different states. Airbnb was popping off, like gig economy was like clearly going to take off in many respects as it did. We thought food and home cooked food would be a clearly like great avenue for that too. It turns out it's not so great because it's a little bit illegal in Australia to run a commercial kitchen from your home. Also the unit economics around selling meals for $12 and having to go and do all the work to sell the meal doesn't really add up to a good business like driving Uber full-time is or having a portfolio of Airbnb and you know renting full-time. If you did Airbnb full-time, you'd make good money. If you did Uber full-time, you'd be able to survive. If you did like neighbor flavor full-time, you probably wouldn't be able to survive. And that created a bit of a challenge for us because the maths never really stacked up for the supply side to get fully invested in the business. So we actually moved to New York for three months and worked with a company there that had a very similar business to us. We saw the same thing happening with them and it wasn't just illegally, it was the unit economics and the supply side investment didn't really work. So we canned the business before we actually launched a product, which was really good. And then I went and did a kind of a startup incubator type business with Adrian, who is now my partner, but we were business partners. And then we started dating a little bit later and we were just helping really early stage entrepreneurs like put hacky products together. So it's like, you know, using Typeform and um, Airtable and email campaign automation and just like not even really coding stuff, but trying to test ideas in the early stages. That was Pitch Black. And Mr. Yum was born out of Pitch Black. So about a year and a half into doing Pitch Black with Adrian, we decided to start working on an idea of our own again. And that was Mr. Yum. So do you remember the day you thought of Mr. Yum? Yeah, we'd go to restaurants all the time. I like don't have, I have an Instagram profile, but it's not got any photos. So I'm not like a Instagram posting person. I'd still go on Instagram and look for dishes, look for visuals, like photos of dishes when I went to a restaurant. So I'd get a menu and I'd try to like figure out what I wanted to eat by looking for photos of the dishes on Instagram and could see that so many people around me were doing the same. It's like, well, what does that look like? What is this thing? Like, I don't understand this dish. And you're just trying to like piece together the puzzle of a menu, I started saying to Adrian, well, like, surely there's going to be like visual menus at some point. Like surely someone's going to bring these menus to life so that people can see what they're about to buy before they go and order. You'd have so much less FOMO if you always ordered the right thing based on like what the dish or the cocktail looked like or the drink. And he thought it was a terrible idea, like an like a terrible idea for many, many months, mostly because he didn't think anyone would pay for it. And he's right, like very difficult to sell an actual just visual menu. The restaurant might pay you know, 30 bucks a month, but they're not going to pay 200 bucks a month subscription for the product. And the consumer is certainly not going to pay for the product. And we continued to like go to restaurants and I'd bring it up for probably like six to seven to eight months. I was also in Kerry's ear about it. And she's one of our co-founders. And one day she was like, man, I feel like this menu idea has got some legs. I feel like we should just try, like, let's just 
experiment with it. Let's see what happens. You know, what can we, what's the smallest thing that we can do to see if it's successful. And in this moment, we were helping early stage founders like test their ideas. So like we felt like we were well equipped to test our own idea. And at the time, QR codes had just been put into the camera. So we saw that as a bit of a gateway. It's like, well, you don't need to download an app anymore. You can just scan a QR code with your camera and it would load a website that wasn't even possible six months before we launched. And so we built, you know, a very simple Airtable database, not even a database. It's just an Airtable with an API key. We got a junior front-end developer to build a React front-end that could show the images and the menus. We said we'd sign up three local venues and that if less than 5% of customers scanned the QR code from the start of the experiment that we would put the idea in the bin and never tell anyone about it. And we had like 16% of people scan the QR code in the first two weeks at the first three locations that are all around Collingwood. And then Adrian, like literally two weeks after we start, we launched, Adrian was like, I think you're going to have to go full time. Like, I think we need to find a way to get you out of pitch black and transition all of your responsibilities over and have you start actually full-time committing to Mr. Yum. And we self-funded Mr. Yum out of the pitch black business for probably the first kind of three or four months before we raised any capital and kind of got on our own feet. Just a little inside of an idea turned into, and you know, an idea that most of the team thought was a pretty bad idea turned into like, well, how do we just experiment with it and see if it gets any traction and the focus probably led us to where we are today when i come back from the break i want to actually talk to you i don't know what the word is um but your determination and dogness because like six or seven months of putting this idea <laughs> rinsing this idea through your mind and talking to adrian and partner all the time about it and and not giving up on it and then what was the moment that actually made you um, apart from you you tested it out in the three restaurants etc and you got the 16 percent take up uh, apart from the the data or the yeah yeah that that i mean what was it that made you continue on with this thought process but we'll go to the break first we'll come straight back and we'll talk about that Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. I'm back here with Kim Tao. She's uh, the CEO and one of the founders of Mr. Yum. And we've been talking about um, like the genesis of the idea. And uh, one of the things, I, I just want to go back on this, Kim, because it's quite important to me. Your partner, Adrian, your partner in life, so to speak, and also business partner. Yeah. And you have another co-founder as well. Yeah, Kerry, and we have a, a fourth 
Andre to this for us. You had this view that um, restaurants and or vendors of the product, they should be the visually, what, what am I looking at here? But you had for some reason kept getting pushback or not pushback, but sort of uh, other people telling you that it's not that interesting. Um, and I wonder what it is that makes someone like you hang in there and keep prosecuting the idea. Did at any point you say, nah, stuff it, it's never going to work, I've got to stop thinking about this and you know, concentrate on the other things I'm doing? So I think there was definitely a time where I probably believed it was not a very good idea as well because all of the trusted sources around you suggest that you know it's not a good idea. But I kept getting reminded of it. Like every time I'd go out to a restaurant, I'm like, oh, it would be so good to have a vision menu. Like, Every week it would happen to me and the problem was reoccurring and it kept happening every single time that I needed a visual menu. I'd be like, oh, it'd be so good if I had some photos. I think every idea that ends up working out has to be a little bit contrarian. You know, if the idea was so obviously good, it probably already exists. Um, And so if it doesn't exist in a scaled way and like you'll always find someone that's done it before you. I don't think anyone um, comes up with brand new ideas and ideas like a bit of an evolution and something that you've seen before a data point you've collected somewhere. So in my mind, like Asian restaurants had been doing this for a long time. So it's like, well, they do it and they make it not cheesy and it's actually really helpful. Like you go to an Asian restaurant and you look at the photos and you make a decision based on, the images, it's helpful. So it's not like people don't want it. It's just like, how do we find a kind of sexy way to present it that doesn't feel like a laminated piece of paper as a menu? I think the acknowledgement that ideas have to be a bit contrarian for them to be successful business at some level is pretty widely acknowledged. And it's even the way VCs go into deals if they all sit around a room and it's like partnership, collective, yeses with every single person with no doubts at all they actually don't invest like they don't want to invest in something that every other person thinks is a wonderful idea because it's either going to be super competitive or there's a very clear reason that everyone's thought about it and probably lots of people have tried and there's a reason that it's not mass market yet because there's something about it that doesn't quite work i do it all the time i've always got ideas got new ideas i mean i'm always you know like i'm a bit like the guy at the castle and um (laughs) you can't discourage me it doesn't matter what what do you say to people about when to keep thinking about when to stop thinking about it because that 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 crossover is quite a a sensitive point yeah it's um yeah you're right the it's a fine line and I'm sure many people stop before they actually get to the line of, you know, making a clear decision about whether to go or not to go. And by the way, we get hit up by, you know, all the time saying, oh, I had an idea similar to Mr. Yum and I should have done it. And, um, you know, there were many people with a similar idea that never quite executed and got it off the ground. I think the first thing would be probably talk to someone that has an understanding of that industry. So like if your mate says it's not a very good idea, but they don't work in hospitality and they don't have context and they're not the customer, they're not the customer or the mind of the customer, then like I think the quality of their impression or the quality of their recommendation is probably quite low. Good point. So the first one would be like go and seek um, advice from someone who you think could be a very ideal customer. Those were game-changing moments for Mr. Um, we had actually the GM of Proud Mary and the CEO of a group called the Australian Venue Co. were kind of the two very first people to sit us down and say, 
you are sitting on something so much more than like a visual menu. You know, if you can take orders and you can take payment, it would solve this long list of problems that we have in hospitality, operational problems, commercial problems, financial problems that Adrian and Kerry and I had no idea. Like we didn't even know that these problems really were top of the list problems or that we had an avenue to solving them in the future. So they turned our kind of small, like insight, I would say, into a, a solution that could solve a, a top three problem for our customers in the future. And had we not had that encouragement from them, I don't think we would have probably had the roadmap of where to go and how we would make a product that could be an absolute game changer in the industry. And that's what you need to do to, be, to build a big business. It needs to be like, oh, this can actually change the way that the P&Ls are made up. This can change the way that businesses are run. This can change the guest experience. This can make everything a lot better. Yeah, asking someone who's got context of customer rather than just um, a friend or someone that you think is good at business. The second one is like probably understanding why they think it's not a good business. So like for in, my, in our case, Adrian just didn't think it was good monetization. Like he thought guests would use it. And he thought merchants would use it, but he thought that they would only use it if it was free. I'm like, well, that's true. And that's fair. So I had to solve the monetization problem, which is like, okay, well, how are we going to make money off this product to create a real business? You have to make some money. And that for us is payments, right? And payments turns out to be a very good business. And fintech turns out to be a very good category. Also figuring out like, okay, cool. You don't think it's a good idea. Do you think it's not a good idea because people wouldn't use it or because it's not solving a big enough problem or it's actually just a problem that like, it's a nice to have. It's like something you wouldn't pay for, like trying to get down to the, the, the crux of like, why it's a, why it's a no go. And if you can find a way to solve for that, then I think it can qu kind of quite easily go from like a, this is an idea not worth pursuing to an idea actually really worth pursuing. You know, you you've established that the consumer will use it because it's a good idea. It makes sense. It's, it's yeah. nice to have. It's, it's good on the wish list. People will use it. If, as long as they don't have to pay for the consumer. Then you've got your um, vendor, uh, let's call it the restaurant. They think it's good interaction between them and the consumer because they would also appreciate the same thing. The consumer would like to use it, but they're not probably prepared to pay a lot of money for it. They, you know, they might say, look, I'll give you 20, 30 bucks, some, some token amount, which probably is not going to be enough to run the business. Explain to me what was the monetization part? You talked about the payments. So explain how that all works. We then figured out that if you can get someone to use a menu to make a decision about what they want to order, then you can very easily do an add to cart, take the order and take the payment um, and actually kind of close the loop on, cool, I'm going to use this thing to decide what to order. Now I'm going to just place the order. Taking the order and taking the payment means that you are processing the transactions and the value of the order through the platform. And we take a percentage on each of those transactions. And Adrian and I, like we both knew from all of our background that any business that is a clip on transactions is a very good model. It's a very scalable model. It's an uncapped model, meaning if the venue processes a hundred orders, they can process a thousand orders. You know, you don't stop being able to lift up the value of the product from the volume that they can transact. And it's a very attractive model to investors and the broader public markets as well. Like the fintech category attracted much higher multiples than a, a marketplace, even until you get to network effects and a SaaS. So it, I think we understood where we needed to get it to, and we just needed to find the right path to getting there. So that's how we make money today. We don't charge an upfront fee. 
or an integration fee or a SaaS fee were purely a transaction based. And obviously you get picked this sort of stuff out of, up out of working for JP Morgan's and all those types of people, types of organizations. But to some extent, you're a fintech as much as anything else. I mean, as much yeah. as being a marketplace or a, or a, someone who um, provides a service between a vendor and consumer, um, you're a fintech because yeah. uh, you're you're taking the payments. So, I mean, one of the great things, if if I'm a vendor of the product that the consumer's consuming, that um, I don't have to, I can, I've got less staff involved, I've got less shit to do. I mean, just basically, and you're doing it all and you're sending me my money and you're taking a clip. Yeah. And, uh, and investors love that stuff because it's um, annuity style business, you know, which gets, you get, you make money while you sleep sort of thing. And uh, so that that sort of solves another problem. That's the raising capital, so you can get the scale because everyone who gets scale needs capital to make the, to reach scale. What you're doing is you're sort of building this little uh, dynamic uh, within your own business. Your I mean, investors love that stuff. They're like electrons. You got to attract them in. You know, you got to have the protons sort of sitting there in the middle of the nucleus, looking really sexy and cool. And they love annuity style stuff. And fintech is a, is like a like I know it's, it's like a category killer today. Yeah, it ticks a lot of boxes and I think that I would almost encourage um, someone who wants to become a founder to go and work at a startup because our experience and having done a few and knowing what investors look for gave us a good checklist of like, hey, if we're going to go and start a company and put five to 10 years of our life into it, we're going to want to make sure that it ticks some of these boxes. And it's not because that's what investors want. Like, I think it's bad to say like, oh, you just go and build a business because that's what investors want. The irony is that what investors want is what a good business is. Yeah. <laughs> like the reason, the reason those, the reason they want it is because they've seen the movie, and they've seen how successful Stripe is, and they've seen how successful you know any business that leverages on a payment revenue stream is. You know, Toast is a great example. They're a point of sale company, and one of the probably only successful restaurant tech IPOs in recent history, and their business model is predominantly payment. So I think you can almost just draw parallels between what investors are looking for and what tends to be a good, a successful business model. And if you can find a way to make those numbers work for the restaurants as well for your customers. So we're not a cheap product. And when you add up all the transactions, it's not a cheap fee. But when you think about the savings that they make and increasing basket size by 20 to 45%, then like easily those numbers are return on investment 10x. You've got to like solve for a really meaty problem that either creates a huge revenue uplift or a huge cost reduction. And then you can take a small slice of that and still be like transforming the business overall. So yeah, I think there needs to be some, you know, economics and some back of the envelope. We never built like crazy models or anything. I don't believe in that, but like, you know, back of the envelope calculations and like, you know, what, what are we actually going to add to our, customer's bottom line and how much of that can we take in a fee and is that a good business if we can take that percentage as a as a clip you mentioned unit economics earlier when you talked about neighbor flavor or favorite yeah. flavor neighbor whatever the original thing was that's why i don't remember but um unit <laughs> economics which is sort of quite an interesting thing i mean it's it is a thing um when you said you save uh, one of your vendors or restaurants money so maybe could you just explain what it is that you save them from having to do number one it changes the operational model of a restaurant or a pub or a bar so if we take the pub or bar example where you typically go up to the bar and order your drinks 
And instead you're sitting down and being able to order from your phone when it's busy, which is a prime time, like, you know, bars might only have 15 hours in a week. That is their absolute prime time, make like prime time to make money. And during that time, there's like a bottleneck. There's a bottleneck at the bar where you can't, you're 3D, 4D, 5D. And you see people all around with half empty, like totally empty drinks waiting for that one friend who hasn't finished their drink to go and buy another round. So in an environment like a bar, you're not actually reducing labor costs. You're increasing throughput during the busiest times of the, of the week when it's your hottest time to make money. And actually a lot of bars that we work with and they're starting to think about this, they're setting up like dispense areas where there's no customers at the bar. It's just a bar that is just doing Mr. Yum orders. All of the Mr. Yum orders go to a bar that is not a service bar, it's a dispense bar. And they just crank out beers and pour cocktails and make drinks, right? So it's like changing the labor, changing the service model to suit a higher throughput because your customers suddenly don't have to wait in line anymore. And at the same time, they're so much happier because they get to stay with their friends and connect and not have to go and wait in a big line. The other thing is that you end up, you know, having a few more runners. So you're actually like increasing labor in pubs because you're having to have people run the drinks. You never had people running drinks before. People used to come and grab their own drinks, but the cost of the runners totally is like totally made up for the, the high throughput of the, of the location. Um, whereas a cafe or a restaurant, slightly different, like you do end up with fewer front of house staff because they don't have to take an order and they don't have to take a payment, which is about 30% of the you know, administrative tasks that they would have had to do before the labor shift. So you can definitely save some on front of house, but back of house doesn't change. And sometimes because customers can order themselves, you actually have to increase your back of house capacity a little bit to keep up with the volume of orders that are coming through. Because again, you've removed this bottleneck of service having to take orders. The labor piece is interesting and it's one that we have to be a little bit careful about because you know we're not trying to take jobs away from the the ecosystem and in the current climate actually there's a huge labor shortage in hospitality mm. anyway and like without the product a lot of our restaurants genuinely couldn't even operate because they don't have enough people to service the areas that they have to and they would have had to like reduce the service area down to maybe just the inside and not the outside, which limits their ability to make revenue. So yeah, there's many things we, you know, through upsells and visuals, we increase the actual basket size, average order value. We increase the throughput of a location because customers can serve themselves. And then if it's a cafe or restaurant environment, we also reduce some front of house labor costs. How do you deal with tips um, for the service staff? Um, we have a tipping function on Mr. Yum. So you get prompted to uh, leave a tip through the checkout flow. And we found, especially in the US where tipping is far more normal and part of the Mm. dining experience rather than a gesture, tips stay the same or they're higher. So it actually improves ironically because customers have a better time because they are not constantly waiting and you know they can get whatever they want whenever they want the tipping piece isn't too challenging it's built into the product and has been for a while how do you sell this in so to speak to the bar cafe restaurant i mean that's that you must have some pretty good business development people before covid it was really challenging like before covid we were selling into like super open-minded business owners that knew that this was the future but didn't quite know how we were going to get there and would buy into it, but we'd get a lot of pushback at the operational level 
around the change. COVID helped us massively around like mm. just the catalyst to switching your mindset around what was normal, what is normal. All of my staff have a lot of my staff have gone back to overseas countries. You know, the restaurant isn't the same anymore. What can I do to solve for my current problems? A lot of people did implement it as like a COVID solution at the time. But when they started seeing how enormous a change it was to their guest experience, as well as how much a better time the servers were having, because they're not having to do the admin parts of taking orders and they can like engage and interact with guests, they kept the product and they have kept the product. Um, and we've seen very little churn post, you know, the initial stages of, of, of COVID. So I think our category would have taken at least three years or longer to get to where it is today if it hadn't been for this catalyst that that, um, that happened last year. It's amazing. Yeah. For people who hate using QR codes, which I hate using get, to get into a restaurant, although yeah, as of yeah. right now you don't have to do it, but uh, in New South Wales at least, um, all of a sudden uh, technology has actually become something that has in your case enhances my experience and uh, and, and particularly for the for the vendors or the restaurants I quickly want to talk to you because we're going to run out of time and I, I'm conscious of your time uh, scaling this business up you said um, that you're in um, the US and you're in LA, you got an office in LA are you in UK as well yeah that requires a lot of capital how do you find the capital markets both here and overseas I can see you've raised money from overseas as well how's that been going for you in terms of um acceptability approachability etc yeah I I mean the capital markets are better than they've ever been for founders that's just the truth the markets are the frothiest they've ever been there's more capital deployed quarter on quarter than you know, the, uh, that's ever seen before and at like a pretty phenomenal rate. It's actually pretty statistically relevant that venture has been proven to be the most successful asset class of the last 10 years. The venture world have proven that they've outperformed every other asset class. And so all the money is now flooding into venture and investing in tech and trying to get into this industry in some way. So we've just, there's just so much money out there and so much capital out there. Um, but what we're finding is it's not spray and pray capital. It's like triple down on the best company's capital. The capital doesn't mean that the firms will want to, you know, invest in like just any asset and any business and they haven't lowered their quality of what they're looking for. I don't think they're doubling and tripling the amount of capital they're putting into the companies that they like. One person would have invested in 10 companies in a year. They don't have this headspace to invest in more than 10 companies in a year. They've got to do the work to find the companies and talk to heaps of companies and then only get to invest in a few and only get to... And what they're doing is like going, okay, well, if you, if you would have had to put $10 million into every one of those 10 companies... Now we've got $30 million to put into each one of those companies. So the valuations are skyrocketing. The rounds are getting shorter. So the successful companies are getting funding more quickly, faster. The rounds are getting less than 12 months between each round. The amount of money deployed per round is going up. But the number of companies that are getting capital, I think, is staying somewhat, you know, it's not ballooning out as fast as the amount of capital getting deployed because of efficiency. Australia's hot property at the moment. Uh, I think I've said this a few times throughout like some, you know, different press releases, but genuinely think like Afterpay, Canva, like these brands have just put us on the map and venture firms that have largely ignored Australia for a while are like, you know, looking up and going, how's going over there? Like, how did this, 
afterpay company that we've never heard of before suddenly get acquired by Square for $29 billion? Like, how did that happen? And we didn't know. And I think it's made them look to Australia to see. And they're actually looking for an investment in Australia. A lot of them are wanting to place a bet in Oz to, you know, have a an insight into the industry here and the uh, local VCs. We have a lot to thank for, you know, the the local venture industry that have created enough buzz and enough connections into global to be able to, you know, help us jump the pond or connect with investors overseas. That's a really good point about um, doubling down. I mean, I make investments in lots of Startups, like very, very early startups, and um, I'm, I tend to – I don't have the time anymore to do analysis on these things. And uh, so I, what I'm actually doing is I'm going into the second and third rounds as well. Normally I just do the first round and just let it just ride from there on. Yeah. And then I go and try and find another one. But it's too hard and it's too – and also it's – there's so many startups now you don't know – I haven't got the time to work out whether there's already four or five people in the space. And I see Airtree Ventures is in there. So like you, you said how people like Daniel Petrie and those guys at Airtree, how they've done such a good job with putting Australia on the map. And equally then you see something like um, Afterpay, what they did, um, they showed that uh, venture capitalists in Australia can make a lot of money out of something like Afterpay. But equally on the, on the other side, on the flip side of it, there's a bit of FOMO too. Like, you know, if you're running a portfolio and you're in San Francisco and you're running a portfolio money and it's a global portfolio, you've got to diversify into all those places where everybody's making dough. And uh, so Australia is now on the, as you say, makes sense. It's, it's now on the map. It's now on the map. You know, I don't want, Totally. Yeah. And, uh, you're, and by the way, you know, Mr. Yum is a good example of, uh, you know, the sort of, you're not in the afterpay category just yet, but the sort of what afterpays are doing around the place because, you know, you've tapped into the investor market in the US and, yeah. uh, in your, you just did a recent round. I was reading up here, um, uh, recently you've raised a fair bit of dough. Um, what are you going to do with that money? What's it for? You know, same as probably nearly every round. It's, um, going to be some international expansion and like you said it's expensive trying to crack the u.s and london at the same time it, w- it won't take all that capital i think we've got enough we've got more than probably what we intended to to raise in first principles but it's good to have a little bit more fuel and also just continuing to be the best product in the world i think what we learned capital raising and you know we went in saying we wanted 25 us we walked out with 65 and the whole time we were capital raising. I think the one thing that we learned is investors are just looking. There's like a few things. It's very simple. It's very simple. Is this category a rising tide? Do I believe that this is going to be the future? Tick. Now I want to find the category leader in that basket. So like, then you have to prove you're the best product and the best team in that rising tide. And maybe they'll back one and two, but they hardly like you'll see very few venture firms, like tier one venture firms, you know, back four, five, and six, they might back one and two and three and just have them compete um, on a global stage, but they don't really want to back a long tail. And so if you can be in a category that's a growing category and going to be in a very big category, that's very small and nascent at the moment. And um, we need to continue that on, right? Like capital allows us to continue innovating execute on all of the ideas that we've got, which is so many of them, and also hire the best people. Like talent is expensive, recruitment is expensive, retaining people is expensive. So we need to be able to compete on a, on a global stage when it comes to um, remuneration and, and talent. As a fellow Australian, I'm very proud of what you and your co-founders and your team 
and your you know original Australian investors have done. Um, yeah, for them too for sure. What you, what you what you're doing? I mean, like it's just fantastic. You're putting a, uh, us on the map. Usually, I give everybody an opportunity to ask me a question. Do you have a question for me? Yeah, I'd love to know what advice do you have in you know scaling a business overseas or what do you think is going to be our biggest challenge in the next 12 months? Um, in 2005, when I sold Wizard to GE, they said, look, we're, we're pretty crap at setting businesses up around the world, um, but we're really good at buying them. Um, uh, would you guys be interested in entering a joint venture with us and open up the Wizard idea um, in uh, Russia, Brazil, Mexico and India? And uh, we'll joint joint venture with they put in sixty percent of the money we put in forty percent of the money capital and um, so we went, went off to India and uh, the whole idea was just to roll out the wizard idea but funnily enough we ran into a lot of hurdles so um, expanding overseas is not just about having enough capital we had enough capital because um, we had their balance sheet which was pretty very important the General Electric's balance sheet in those days was massive yeah. um, we had good infrastructure. We had the ability to recruit individuals because, you know, GEB had been in India. We started off in India, had been in India for a hundred years. So had, you know, everything, every sort of um, infrastructure you would need in a financial services sense. What we didn't um, expect or um, plan for was the um, cultural differences that in India, for example, that uh, uh, resulted in change to product, change to the way we deliver the product, change the way we recruited people, change the way we retained people, et cetera. So that cultural difference swept across our whole business in every, just about every aspect, right down to the colours of our of our brand. Um, you know, wow. we had an orange and black and white brand here in Australia. We wanted to do the same thing in India, um, but orange was not, was not the right colour. We had to sort of choose a saffron colour, which had a different significance in India, real big significance in India, um, and, uh, and we had to go right through the process of understanding the significance um, and down to how do, how do we pay commissions? I mean, you, you know, a commission structure, which, as you know, is pretty important. Um, our commission structure was uh, um, different to the way we had it here in Australia because um, our commission structure was we paid once here in Australia for someone who went and found a borrower for us. Um, our commission structure there became um, like 20 times because – you don't advertise in India as such, like on television, like we did here traditionally here in Australia at the time. Um, everything's word of mouth there, and um, and but the word of mouth might have been one cousin to another cousin to another cousin to another, and they all expected to get paid on the way through, only a few bucks. But it doesn't matter. So we had to build payment systems and commission structures that allowed us to be able to let's call um, infiltrate into the commun- various communities to get borrowers to come to us. And the third one was in terms of our product. Indians, by definition, didn't borrow money. Everything was paid for in cash. And uh, because they have a, a funny sort of tax system there, so we would assess you based on your tax return in Australia. Um, there they don't lodge tax returns. Uh, maybe 10% of the population lodges tax returns and pays tax. Um, and uh, we had to work out a way that we could assess you as a borrower. So what we did end up doing is we just lent to people mm. who were educated in another country like Australia or America or England who came, who went, generally speaking, they were professionals, have degrees, worked in JP Morgan, for example, in New York, came back to India after being there for five or ten years with a bit of money, wanted to buy one of the new developments and wanted to live like they lived in America but now live like that in India. And so we had to work out who that person was and build our product around it. So 
culturally was the biggest shock for us yeah. in expanding overseas and the product the colors the marketing the recruitment retention commission systems everything changed we just had to adapt it though and took us about 18 months to do that mm. yeah not underestimating um just because everyone speaks english in some mm. countries like the language thing is obvious culturally but the nuances uh, more subtle than that. So just because like America and the UK and Australia all speak English, it doesn't mean that um, we all work the same way. So yeah, that's totally, uh, totally, it's a, it's a, totally top of mind one. So thank you. Research, research, research. A bit like you said really early on, find an expert and uh, make sure that they know what you're, you're doing. I mean, in my case, I was actually joint ventured with someone, so I joint ventured with GE, General Electric in India. They're an Indian business. And so I was able to talk to them and find out everything we needed to find out from Indian experts as to the Indian culture. Yeah. Something like India has got like 170 different languages or something. It's like it's really a complex, super complex place. Uh, you know, I thought I'll go to India, they all speak English. They've got basically English law and everything. And then I thought it was going to be easy. My God. But we, we set up 58 um, branches across India and we became the fourth largest lender in India wow. within uh, 18 months of launching. So those markets, once you crack them, it's incredible. Worth the wait. Because yeah. you've just got numbers, 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 numbers. Yeah. And that's the great thing about being in the US, UK and other places. You know, you've got populations of 380 million. Yeah. Um, and impact too, yeah. right? Like Totally. Well, it's funny you should say because we didn't go right across India. So we actually just concentrated in um, two sort of states of India. There's 1.4 billion people, whatever it is, in India. But we just went into two states. And by the way, one of the states in the major cities got more people in the major city than all, the whole of Australia's population. But so, but there was enough just in two states. And those two states were different to every other state. So we just chose two places, which we did very well in those two places. So, well, I'm really excited for you. Good luck. It's Thank so you. cool. You're, you're a young team. We're just killing it. So I'm so happy to see that happen um, and good luck to you. I appreciate that, Mark. Um, and awesome, awesome chatting to you. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to The Mentor. Audio and production is by Jess Morley and production assistants, Jonathan Leondis. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.